This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara 91.9. I'm Hannah Wolf. This week I'll be reading two stories by Carol M. Schweller, this thing called Love and Hunting Machine. I'll be playing contemporaneous music from 1957, which was when Hunting Machine was published. The intro today was the main title from the Monolithic Monsters, which was composed by Irving Gervetz. The Monolithic Monsters was about a large meteorite that crashes in the desert in Southern California. The meteorite explodes and the fragments have strange properties expanding in great size when exposed to water. Uh, now we are listening to Agon, a ballet composed by Stravinsky and choreographed by George Balanchine, which premiered December 1st, 1957 in New York. The performance we are listening to was performed by the London Symphony Orchestra conducted by Michael Tilson Tomans. First, I'll be reading, in a couple minutes, uh, Hunting Machine by Carol M. Schweller, which was first published in Science Fiction Stories, May 1957.
Hunting Machine by Carol M. Schwiller. It sensed Ruthie McAllister's rapid heartbeat, just as it sensed any other animal's. The palms of her hands were damp, and it felt that too. It also felt the breathing in and out, and it heard her nervous giggle. She was watching her husband, Joe, as he leaned over the control unit of the thing that sensed heartbeats. The gray-green thing they called the hound, or rover, or sometimes the female dog. Hey, she said. I guess it's okay, huh? Joe turned a screw with his thumbnail and pulled out the wire attached to it. Give me a bobby pin. Ruthie reached to the back of her head. I mean, it's not dangerous, is it? No. I don't just mean about it, she nodded at the green-gray thing. I mean, I know you're good at fixing things like this, like the time you got beer for nothing out of the beer vendor, and golly, I guess we haven't paid for a TV show for years. I mean... I know you can fix things, right? Only won't they know when we bring it back to be checked out? Look, these wardens are country boys. And besides, I can put this thing back so nobody knows. The gray-green thing squatted on its six legs where Joe could lean over it. It sensed Ruthie's heartbeat had slowed almost normal, too. And it heard her sigh. I guess you're pretty good at this, huh, Joe? She wiped her damp hands on her green tunic. That's the weight dial, isn't it? She asked, watching him turn the top one. He nodded. Fifteen hundred pounds, he said slowly. Ooh. Was he really and truly that big? Bigger. And now the thing felt Joe's heart and breathing surge. They had been landed day before yesterday. With them, the geodesic tent, pneumatic form beds, automatic camping stove, and pocket air conditioner. Plus portable disposable, automatic blow-up chairs and tables, pocket TV set, four disposable hunting costumes apiece, one for each day, and two folding guns with power settings. In addition, there was the bug scat, ghost snake, sun stop, and the gray-green hunter, sealed by the warden and set for three birds, two deer, and one black bear. They had only the bear to go. Now Joe McAllister had unsealed the controls, released the governor, and changed the setting to brown bear, 1,500 pounds. I don't care, he said. I want that bear. Do you think he'll still be there tomorrow? Joe patted one of the long, jointed legs of the thing. If he's not, old female dog here will find him for us. (laughs) 
Next day was clear and cool, and Joe breathed big, expanding breaths and patted his beginning pouch. Yes, sir, he said. This is the day for something big, something really big, that'll put up a fight. He watched the red of the sunrise fade out of the sky while Ruthie turned on the stove and then got out her makeup kit. She put sunstop on her face, then powdered it with tan powder. She blackened her eyelids and purpled her lips. After that, she opened the stove and took out two disposable plates with eggs and bacon. They sat in the automatic blow-up chairs and the automatic blow-up table. Joe said that there was nothing like North Air to give you an appetite. And Ruthie said she bet they were sweltering back at the city. Then she giggled. Joe leaned back in his chair and sipped his coffee. Shooting deer is just like shooting cow, he said. No fight to them at all. Even while old hound here goads them, they just want to run off. But this bear's going to be different. Of course, bears are shy too. But old hound knows what to do about that. They say it's getting to be so there aren't many of the big kind left. Yes, but one more won't hurt. Think of a skin and head the size of our living room. I guess anyone that came in there would sure sit up and take notice. It won't match the curtains, his wife said. I think what I'll do is pack the skin up tight and leave it somewhere up here till the warden checks us through. Then maybe a couple of days later, I'll come back and get it. Good idea. Ruthie had finished her coffee and was perfuming herself with bug scat. Well, I guess we'd better get started. They hung their folded up guns on their belts. They put their dehydrated, self-heating lunch in their pockets. They slung on their cold canteens. They each took a packet containing chair, table, and sunshade. Then Joe fastened on the little mic that controlled the hunter. It fit on his shoulder where he could turn his head to the side and talk into it. All right, hound dog, he said. Shoulder hunched and head tilted. Get a move on, boy. Back to the spot where we saw him yesterday. You can pick up the scent from there. The hunting machine ran on ahead of them. It sent faster than anything it might have to hunt. Two miles, three miles. Joe and Ruthie were left behind. They followed the beam it sent back to them, walking and talking and helping each other over the rough spots. About 11 o'clock, Joe stopped, took off his red hunting hat, and mopped his balding forehead with the new bandana he'd bought at Hunter's Outfitters in New York. It was then he got the signal. Sighted. 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 Joe leaned over his mic. Stick on him, boy. How far are you? Well, try to move him down this way if you can. He turned to his wife. Let's see about three miles. We'll take 
half an hour out for lunch. Maybe we'll get there a couple hours from now. How's it going, kid? Swell, Ruth, he said. The big bear sat on the rocks by the stream. His front paws were wet almost to the elbows. There were three torn fish heads lying beside him. He ate only the best parts because he was a good fisher, and he looked, now, into the clean, cold water for another dark blue back that would pause on its way upstream. It wasn't a smell that made him turn. He had a keen nose, but the hunting machine was made to have no smell. It was the gray, dead lichen's crackle that made him look up. He stood still, looking in the direction of the sound and squinting his eyes. But it wasn't until it moved that he saw it. Three quarters of a ton, he was. But like a bird or a rabbit or a snake, the bear avoided things that were large and strange. He turned back the way he always took, the path to his rubbing tree and to his home. He moved quietly and rapidly, but the thing followed. He doubled back to the stream again, then, and waded down it on the opposite side from the thing. But still it followed, needing no scent. Once the hunting machine sighted, it never lost its prey. Heartbeat normal, respiration normal, it sent. Size almost 1,600 pounds. The bear got out on the bank and turned back, calling out in low growls. He stood up upon his hind legs and stretched his full height. Almost two men tall, he stood and gave warning. The hunting machine waited 20 yards away. The bear looked at it a full minute. Then he fell back on all fours and turned south again. He was shy and he wanted no trouble. Joe and Ruthie kept on walking north at their leisurely pace until just noon. Then they stopped for lunch by the side of the same stream the bear had waded, only lower down. And they used its cold water on their dehydrated meal. Beef and onions, mashed potatoes, a lettuce salad that unfolded in the water like Japanese paper flowers. There were coffee tablets that contained a heating unit, too, and fizzled in the water like firecracker fuses until the water was hot, creamy coffee. The bear didn't stop to eat. Noon meant nothing to him. Now he moved with more purpose, looking back and squinting his small eyes. The hunter felt the heart beat faster, the breathing heavy, pace increasing, direction generally south. Joe and Ruthie followed the signal until it suddenly changed. It came faster. That meant they were near. They stopped and unfolded their guns. Let's have a cup of coffee first, Ruthie said. Okay, hon. 
Joe released the chair, which blew themselves up to size. Good to take a break so we can really enjoy the fight. Ruth handed Joe a fizzing cup of coffee. Don't forget you want old Rover to goad some. Uh Uh-huh. Bear's not much better than a deer without it. Good you reminded me. He turned and spoke softly into the little mic. The hunting machine shortened the distance slowly. Fifteen feet. Ten. Five. The bear head turned. Again he rose up, almost two men tall, and roared his warning sound to tell the thing to keep back. Joe and Ruthie shivered and didn't look at each other. They heard it less with their ears and more with their spines, with an instinct they had forgotten. Joe shook his shoulder to shake away the feeling of the sound. I guess the old hound is at him. Good dog, said Ruthie. Get him, boy. The hunter's arm tips drew blood, but only in the safe spots. Shoulder scratches at the heavy lump behind his head. Thigh punctures. It never touched the veins or the arteries. The bear swung at the thing with his great paw. His claws screeched down the body sections, but didn't so much as make a mark on the metal. The blow sent the thing 30 feet away, but it got up and came back so fast the bear couldn't see it until it was there, thrusting at him again. He threw it again and again, but it came back every time. The muscles, claws, and teeth were nothing to it. It was made to withstand easily more than what one bear could do. And it knew, with its built-in knowledge, how to make a bear blind angry. Saliva came to the bear's mouth and flew out over his chin as he moved his heavy head sideways and back. It splashed gummy on his cheek and made dark, damp streaks across his face. Only his rage was real to him now, and he screamed a deep rasp of frustration again and again. Two hundred yards away, Joe said, Some roar! Uh Uh-huh. If noise means anything, it sounds like he's about ready for the real fight. They both got up and folded up the chairs and cups. They sighted along their gun barrels to see if they were straight. Set them at medium, Joe said. We want to start off slow. They came to where the bear was and took up a good position on a high place. Joe called in his mic to the hunter thing. Stand by, hound dog, and slip over here to back us up. Then he called to the bear. Hey, boy, this way, boy, this way. The gray-green thing moved back, and the bear saw the new enemy, two of them. 
He didn't hesitate. He was ready to charge anything that moved. He was only five feet away when their small guns popped. The force knocked him down, and he rolled out of the way, dazed. He turned again for another charge and came at them, claws and teeth. Joe's gun popped again. This time the bear staggered, but still came on. Joe backed up, pushing at his gun dial to raise the power. He bumped into Ruthie behind him, and they both fell. Joe's voice was a crazy scream. Get him! The hunting machine moved fast. Its sharp forearms came like an uppercut under the jaw and into the brain. He lay, looking small somehow, but still big, his ragged fur matted with blood. Fleas were alive on it, and flies already coming. Joe and Ruthie looked down at him and took big breaths. You should have got behind me, Joe said, as soon as he caught his breath. I could have kept it going for longer if you just stayed out of the way. You told me to, Ruth said. You told me to stay right behind you. Well, I didn't mean that close. Ruthie sniffed. Anyway, she said. How are you going to get the fur off it? Hmm. I don't think that moth-eating thing will make much of a rug. It's pretty dirty, too, and probably full of germs. Joe walked around the bear and turned its head sideways with his toe. Be a big, messy job, all right, skinning it. Up to the elbows in blood and gut, I guess. I didn't expect it to be like this at all, Ruthie said. Why don't you just forget it? You had your fun. Joe stood, looking at the bear's head. He watched a fly land on its eye and then walk down to a damp nostril. Well, come on, Ruthie took her small pack. I wanted to get back in time to take a bath before supper. Okay. Joe leaned over his mic. Come on, old rover, old hound dog. You did fine. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM, Santa Barbara, 91.9, and I'm Hannah Wolf. That was Hunting Machine by Carol M. Schweller, which was first published in Science Fiction Stories, May 1957. I censored it slightly. She used colorful words to describe the hound that I thought were inappropriate for radio. Her first novel, Carmen Dog, in 1988, was a feminist allegory in which women are transformed into dogs and dogs are transformed into women. So she she likes to work with um, man's relationship with dogs and women and technology in her stories. 
in the background to that story was a gone by the ballet a score by Stravinsky now we are listening to Metamorphosis by Vladimir Yusachevsky a Chinese American electronic music composer This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM, Santa Barbara 91.9. I'm Hannah Wolf. Next, I'll be reading This Thing Called Love by Carol M. Schweller, which was first published in Future Science Fiction, issue number 28 in 1955.
This Thing Called Love by Carol M. Schwiller. Today I stopped loving Alan. It happened really suddenly. I came down to breakfast, which Mike had dialed for me on the Milo mat. He's rather nice that way. I sat down beside Mike, and all of a sudden, I thought to myself, Alan stinks, just like that, and it was over. So I said it out loud, Alan stinks. Mike gave the sigh of relief. So it's over at last, he said, and I said, it sure is. Then he got a very serious look on his face. Janie, he said. I've been waiting for this to happen. I've been wanting to talk to you about us. Hmm? I hate people to talk about serious things when I'm eating. How can you enjoy your food when you have to concentrate on something else? The mat had just served an omelet and hot rolls, so I didn't listen till I'd finished all I wanted. Then I said, Will you please repeat? I was eating. That was when he told me he was in love with me. Me? I'm glad I didn't listen till I finished my breakfast because it made me laugh so I wouldn't have been able to eat half so much. You see, we've been married for five years, and after all, we're human beings. There's no doubt about that. I admit, I'm pretty much on the plump side, and my hair couldn't be any straighter. And believe me, it's not hard to see Mike is human, too. He's almost bald, and his nose... Well, you never see one like that on TV. Not in a million years. So a bald-headed, hooked-nosed, very human human being says he's in love with a straight-haired fatty. Now I ask you, does that make sense? Why, we didn't even think of loving each other when we got married. Mike didn't think it was a joke, though. He's been getting pretty unrealistic lately, if you ask me. Will you stop laughing and listen just once till I finish, he said. I've been thinking a lot about this, and it's important, even if it's being broadcast over TV. Listen, I do love you. I don't know how I can convince you, but I do. He was looking at me with those big, earnest eyes of his. So I said to myself, if you want to play it serious, I can play it serious as well as any. But I sure saved up a lot of laughter for later, and I kept thinking, wait till Betty hears about this. Anyway, I stopped laughing, and he went on with the I love you business for a while. Then he said that the way people love nowadays is unnatural, and that our whole life is unnatural. He said that people, real people, were beautiful, just like TV stars. Better, he said. As I said, he was getting very unrealistic. I can't convince you by talking, he said. But maybe I can show you, if you can just drag yourself away from that TV set for a while. Not me, I said. Do you think I like not being in love? I'm going to find myself another TV star just as soon as I can. Look, Mike said, 
Just give me a couple of days. No, sir. Listen. I'll tell you what it's all about. You heard about the Pioneer rocket ships on the TV news, didn't you? I had heard about them all right, and I could see right away what he was driving at. He'd got some crazy idea he wanted to go with them, off pioneering. And the rules were, nobody could go without their wife. And not only that, you had to sign statements you'd have children. Not just one, which was the legal limit on Earth, but three or four. You can see how primitive life would be. And I don't think they were taking any TV robots, either. There wasn't going to be room for anything but ordinary human beings. Janie, Mike said. I want you to see the rockets, as I've seen them, and what the people are doing. And I want you to see some of the history shows at the museum. You might understand more. Please, just give me a couple of days. You want me to take two whole days out of my life to go trapezing off to dead exhibits? Why, those museum shows don't even have background music. Don't think I'm a complete ignoramus. I saw one once. Please? Besides, I haven't been away from the TV set that long since I was a year and a half. Mother always said I was a precocious listener. Really? Only a year and a half, and I was listening regularly. Of course, I couldn't understand at all. Janie, if you had any feelings about our marriage at all, you could grant me a couple of days. Oh, all right. Don't make a fuss, for heaven's sake. I'll let you have a day or so. So, before I knew it, I found myself in the museum. Of course, there was nobody there but us. Oh, there were two old men who could read, but everybody knows anyone that reads is a crackpot, so I don't count them. Anyway, we played some shows, and it was all old stuff as far as I could see. I hadn't seen any of them before, but things get spread around. By the grapevine, I guess. I mean, we all know that before people were civilized, they used actual human beings as actors on their TV shows. And we know what sort of human beings they were, too. Mike is still pretty naive about things, even when it comes to history, which I must say he loves. I asked him right then. I said, Did they use ordinary, everyday human beings as actors? Of course I knew they hadn't, and Mike had to admit they picked the ones that looked the most like robots and made them up to seem even more so. Sometimes they used false teeth and false hair and stuff to cover skin blemishes. If they couldn't be robots, they sure tried hard to be like them. Some of them came awfully close, too. They were almost pretty. Finally, I told Mike this was all old stuff and asked him why, in heaven's name, was he making them look at it. I thought you might get a new perspective on things if you saw a sequence of how they developed, he said. At least I hoped. 
Well, I can see even better than I could before, I told him. How people were trying to get just what we have right now. Mike looked kind of shocked. Then he said, Come on, let's go see the ships. And that was the end of the museum trip. The rockets were pretty interesting. I was surprised. Of course, I've seen things like this on TV lots of times. Better, in fact. But seeing the real thing had a different feel. I could almost understand why Mike wanted to go. Of course, he was letting his emotions carry him away. But it was exciting. The ships so big and all that bustled around them. The first one was going to leave the very next day, even though it didn't have its full quota. These days it's pretty hard to get people to volunteer for this sort of thing, which isn't surprising. Mike was pretty excited, too. Look at those men, he said. We could be like that. It doesn't take long to harden up and slim down. We could look a lot more like actors than we do, if we tried. They may have better looking figures than most people, I said. But they're still a long way from the robots. I'm damn glad they are. They're human beings, and that means a lot. I was shocked. I've never heard that kind of talk before. I'm glad there was nobody near us to hear it. You've already got such odd ideas. What will happen if you go off with these people, I said. I don't see how we can go. I mean, if you had an ordinary idea, there wouldn't be so much danger, and maybe we could go then. But as it is, you'll be completely uncivilized out there in the wilds, just where it's most necessary to keep our values. What about art and beauty, too? No TV? No actors? Are they just going to go down the drain? No, you can't do it. You're already too far gone. But Janie, this isn't the only way to be civilized, or the only art. It is to me, and that trip to the museum proved it. We're right at the point where people long ago wanted to be. No, you can't go. I won't go. So you can't go either. Look, you promised me one more day. Please don't decide until then. Well, if you can change my mind, which I doubt it, you're welcome to try. So that was the end of day number one, and hardly a pleasant day at that. Not being in love was making me awfully jumpy, too. I wasn't sure I could hold out a whole day more. The next day when I came down, Mike had punched the meal mat buttons again and ordered me a nice breakfast, as usual, but he wasn't there. He must have gotten up early and gone for a walk again. It's a bad habit, which I've told him and told him I dislike, especially when the neighbors can see and everything. But he does it occasionally anyway. I guess it's some kind of phobia? I finished breakfast and then I was stuck. I'd promised not to look at the TV today. But what was there to do? Finally, I decided to call my neighbor, Betty, and I told her the whole story about Mike and the rocket ships and history and everything. We had a good laugh over it. 
I felt even more that I was right not to go. I mean, well, what other decision is there? Anyway, the phone call didn't really take so very long, and afterwards, I tried to think of someone else to call. But everyone I know, except Betty, would be mad if, as anything if I interrupted a TV show. So I sat around a few minutes wondering, and then I went into the TV room. After all, Mike had gone for a walk, and I don't like that. So how could he kick about this? Besides, I said, a day or so, which I promised, not two days exactly. I'm certainly awfully glad I did turn on the set right then. Otherwise, I might have missed Jerry. He looked handsomer than any robot I'd ever seen. And especially so when I thought of how generations and generations of human beings had been striving all through the ages for just such artistic perfection. He had a smooth face and such silky hair and large blue eyes, bluer than real eyes could ever be. His shirt was open to the waist and his chest was shiny and hairless underneath. I was in love again and it was wonderful. The program was over by the time Mike got home, but Jerry would be on again tonight at eight. I had already signed up for Jerry's fan club too. Mike didn't say anything when he came in. I guess anyone could see I was in love again. And Mike knew there was no sense in talking. He was right, there wasn't. He went up to our room to mope a while, I guess. And then he came downstairs and went out again. I saw him from the TV room window. I supposed he was going for another walk. But he didn't come back for lunch, not for supper either. Of course, this didn't worry me too much. I was caught up in the programs for the day and hardly had time to think about anything but Jerry now and then. I began to wonder a little after Jerry's night program was over. I had ordered a case of Jay's Jet Action Soap. Jerry said it was best to get it by the case. I guess Mike was really put out about not getting to go on one of those ships. But after all, it had been out of the question all along, as far as I was concerned, and that meant for him, too. At nine, I watched a news program of the launching of the first Pioneer rocket ship. The quota, surprisingly, was almost filled, much closer than expected, it seems. At 9.30, Jack, Betty's husband, knocked on the door. As soon as I opened it, I could see he was mad. Do you know what they've done? He shouted. Who? I asked. Your husband and my wife. They've left on a rocket ship together. Why, that's illegal. They're not even married. Well, they've done it, and they've left us. Then I got pretty mad, too. And we shouted at each other for about half an hour. And then Jack asked if it was close to ten yet. It was, so he left in a hurry. He's in love with Grace Glenn. She's always on at ten. I calmed down pretty soon, what with some nice music on TV. After all, I thought, I had Jerry. 
And then I got to thinking about Jack upstairs. He's not so bad. A nice, steady type, without any fancy ideas. I wouldn't want to stay unmarried very long. I wonder. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM Santa Barbara 91.9. I'm Hannah Wolf. That was This Thing Called Love by Carol M. Schweller, which was first published in Future Science Fiction number 28 in 1955. The sound bed for the story was um, Varianti by Luigi Nono, an Italian avant-garde composer. What we'll be listening to next is Requiem for Strings by Toru Takamitsu, a Japanese composer and writer on aesthetics and music theory. Stravinsky discovered Takamitsu and brought him to international attention when he heard Requiem for Strings while in Japan in 1958. The stories today were by Carol M. Schweller. M. Schweller was born in 1921 in Ann Arbor, Michigan. She received her BA in music and later design from U of M, Ann Arbor. While getting her BA in design, she met her husband, Ed M. Schweller, an artist and experimental filmmaker who illustrated many early pulp science fiction. They moved to Paris, where she was a Fulbright Fellow, and he studied at the École des Beaux-Arts. Afterwards, they moved to Long Island, New York, where she spent the rest of her life. She said that she... She said, I started writing science fiction in the first place because I met my husband's friends who were science fiction writers. Unlike my college literature classes, they spoke of writing as if a normal human being could do it, maybe even me. They spoke of technical problems and solutions. Her first published science fiction novel was in 1955. Later, she won the World's Science Fiction Award in 1991, Philip K. Dick Award in 2002 for The Mount, and Best Short Story Novella in 2002 for The Creature. These awards were, you know, 36 to 70, sorry, 47 years into her career, so it took a while for her work to be recognized. I'll leave you with the end of Requiem for Strings today, and I hope you have a good morning.